Hi, I'm Hugh Richards, Head of Digital Investment Banking at JP Morgan, and the host of our podcast series, What's the Deal? We just had a fascinating discussion on what a post-Brexit world looks like, and we're going to rejoin that conversation now to explore different angles in the second episode. Again, I'm joined by Vittorio Grilli, JP Morgan's Chairman of Italy and the Corporate Investment Bank in EMEA, and the Right Honourable Sajid Javid, MP, a British Member of Parliament and former Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United Kingdom. Let's pick up from where we left off. I'm going to be a little bit parochial now, and let's bring this back to the world of finance and banking. There's a lot of speculation as to what happens to London going forward as sort of the perceived dominant financial center in Europe. And in fact, our own chairman and CEO, Jamie Dimon, he was asked this question recently on Bloomberg TV. So London will always be a financial center. It won't be the financial center of Europe. You're going to get other financial centers like Paris and Frankfurt, Dublin, maybe Amsterdam. How do you see that being played out now? And as you all mentioned, with the advances in technology, do we really need a financial center of mass anymore? We'll be very interested in your perspectives. Europe's financial center is London, and that's a huge benefit to certainly every company, every business, everyone in Europe, because it's a center of liquidity, whether that's on foreign exchange, shares, options, whatever it is for all of Europe. And we know having a center of liquidity is efficient for everyone. That said, I'm concerned that you're starting to see some sort of fragmentation in Europe, whether that's to Amsterdam or, or Paris or Berlin, in terms of one of the impacts of Brexit. But do I think that London in particular will continue to sort of dominate financial services in Europe? I absolutely still do, because whilst, of course, there will be some changes because of Brexit, so many of the other factors that have made London lead in this position, everything from sort of access to talent, you know, more broadly from across the world, not just the EU, the language, the time zone, the regulatory environment, the English law, all of that, you know, none of that changes. Somehow I'm uh, in a little bit of a conflict of interest because I frankly <laughs> love where I work in London and I think it's a fantastic place and uh, it's so well organized and so deep that what she said uh, resonates a lot. I mean, compared to, say, the 70s, the scenario is very different because here you have one Europe, which for financial market means the euro mm. and is a very dominating currency market. Brexit has been somehow a catalyst for many to give it a big push. There is a threat that certainly not from one day to another, but in a matter of years, this uh, different sort of critical mass that you will have in Europe can play to detriment of London as a financial center of Europe. By all means, it will remain a very important world financial center, but whether it will remain the financial center of Europe, I think there is question mark. It will be Another financial center in Europe? I don't think so. Because of technology, I think you could have more than one with different specialization. You will have certainly Frankfurt because you have there the largest European economy and the European Central Bank. You will have Paris because I think that they have done a great job. I think if I look around Europe, they have been the one that have been most consistently invested in technology. They basically, they have been planning around it. Sajid mentioned the Netherlands. Amsterdam is another very important part. They already have a lot of density as far as corporate world is concerned. So I see a multi-centric with not just one dominant center, but my opinion is a lot of activity over the years that has to do with continental Europe in financial market will move 
within uh, the continent. And Hugh, if I can add to that, just touch on something that was said, it's the role of technology. So the biggest challenge to all financial centers, not just London, but New York, Hong Kong, all these places is technology. This theme of the pace of change of technology is just unprecedented. And look at the disruption we've already seen in the financial world just in the last 10 years, whether it's banking services, payments, your lending, share trading, and even now in the pandemic, which I think has accelerated the pace, the amount of Zooming. Yeah, I remember a colleague of mine telling me right at the start of this pandemic, he said, oh, no, we just had to cancel these road shows for an IPO. What are we going to do now? Because the flights <laughs> have been canceled. And we see all these IPOs, they just happen on Zoom. And that isn't going to go back to normal. And that's all about technology, more people working from home because of technology. So the message I would have there for all these incumbents in the financial centers, and whether that's JP Morgan or some of the other big banks and things, unless you innovate, unless you embrace technology, you can't be sure that you're going to remain as strong and as big you know, a decade from now. I completely agree. I completely yeah. agree with you. I do want to pick up on that, though, because Victoria mentioned France. The Netherlands areas and countries that have taken this leadership in technology and how it's related to fintech. I wanted to switch a little bit to sort of UK policy on that front. How do you feel about the pace of innovation within the UK and particularly within the sort of the financial services area? I feel really good. And let me just explain why. First of all, just going back to Brexit, there were some people said, oh, you know, maybe the UK is Brexiting because it wants to sort of turn its back on the world, become more sort of inward looking, you know, pull up the drawbridge and all that stuff. And they couldn't be more wrong. And certainly with Boris Johnson, what you've seen is actually the exact opposite. You know, he often talks about global Britain that's sort of, whether it's the G7, the COP26 or in other ways playing its role in terms of dealing with international challenges, but also a global Britain that's open to ideas, open to talent. Some of the decisions that have been made recently, for example, just even opening up to Hong Kong residents that want to come to the UK, you know, letting students stay here longer after they've graduated, foreign students. All of this, I think, speaks to a UK that wants to be open to ideas, open to people and talent and to technology. And on the regulation front, which is essential, you know, having sensible regulation when it comes to newer technologies that we're all getting used to, whether that's AI or whether it's biotech and fintech, I think the UK can now afford to be more nimble, more agile, quicker in its decision-making, as we saw with the vaccine. And I think that does give it a bit of a competitive edge. And for the EU, for it to sort of compete, it's going to have to overhaul its own sort of regulatory environment. As Vittorio said earlier, it got over 20 countries. They all have different views. And sometimes, you know, that bureaucracy and red tape just gets in front of the obvious decisions that need to be made. So I feel very confident about it in the UK space. If you're all enjoying this conversation as much as I am, you can subscribe to this as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. JP Morgan's At Any Rate, Market Matters, and Tech Trends are all available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Great. So look, we've covered a ton of ground here in terms of different aspects and pulling a little bit away from Europe and more to the global stage. So the negotiations are over. The cards have been dealt. And it perhaps gives an opportunity for the UK to sort of redefine itself a little bit on the global stage. What do you see that the desired role is and how it could evolve over time? Yeah, I think that's very much this idea of global Britain, which just very recently the government actually set out a sort of long-term foreign defense and security policy, something it's called the integrated review. 
And that talks very much about looking ahead to the next few decades, about the UK trying to play the most constructive role it possibly can in trying to deal with global challenges. So, for example, the government has said that its number one foreign policy objective is going to be climate change and declining biodiversity, which is, as we know, it's a global challenge. And you don't solve those issues without getting all the big countries around the table, whether it's the US, the EU, China, and other countries. What I see the UK doing is maybe trying to play more of this sort of broker role, trying to bring people together around the table. The UK itself is, in a sense, it's sort of too big to be a rule taker. It's not big enough to be the rule maker. And so it can try and play this role to try and solve global problems, including making sure international rules are being enforced to come about. Mm. And Victoria, the EU, yes, sort of definitely changed. But does this impact how the European Union sort of sees its role as it relates to some of the issues that Sajid touched on? I think Sajid was spot on. Europe is not one entity yet. And this puts us in a competitive disadvantage. I think that uh, UK will find a way. They have been incredibly good, successful expert in diplomacy across the world, diplomacy with political angle, with economic angle, with financial angle, with defense angle. They have a clear history, incredible history of being a player. And uh, Europe is not a player, frankly. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's not Europe to redefine a role for itself, is to define a role of itself, which means going forward with a true commitment to think and set agenda as Europe, as European, and not as single country member of Europe. And this has to be the change of pace. And if we talk to many of uh, decision makers in Europe, they would agree with that. And this is the big challenge. And I think the stakes are very high. Everything that revolves about getting out of the pandemic through the recovery plan and so on. And I'm quite optimistic that that will happen. But again, Europe is complicated and it will take time to develop. But I think that's the way to go forward. Well, it's great to hear two different points and a great deal of optimism expressed around this topic. I want to wrap us up on what I think is a slightly more existential question that's been mm. triggered by Brexit. And Vittorio, you mentioned it earlier, and Sajid, in your recent Sky News interview with Tony Blair, you touched on it a lot. And that's really around populism, nationalism, and globalization. And we're seeing this obviously being played out in so many forums in so many parts of the world. And look, some of these trends, they were in place before COVID-19 and Brexit, and some of them are accelerating or decelerating after that. But what I wanted to get your impression on is how has the Brexit debate and the Brexit process informed you on this nationalism versus globalization debate? Well, clearly, Brexit was a very important point, you know, not just for a nationalistic or populistic point of view. I mean, some of the debate was a substantial debate about the not adequate delivery from Europe on very important issues that matters to the people. And I think that the good part, the process of Brexit was to focalize and from a European perspective, not to take the support for the European project as granted. I think it was a, a lot of a bureaucratic approach just to keep going without redefining objective and be sort of a very disciplined on the delivery of results. And I think this is where the populism and the nationalism, I think, fed on, that Europe was a not well-defined anymore entity. And I think the Brexit made that very clear to everyone. Plus, pandemia has focused the mind. 
This is also a very important opportunity for Europe, not only to redefine very fast uh, its objective and uh, its raison d'etre, but also to deliver results. And this is where, as I said before, nationalism and populism could lose because if people start understanding the value of what Europe can solve and bring to the population, politics that are born out of dissatisfaction and complaints will uh, find it harder and harder to be appealing to people. So, Jeed, thoughts from you from the UK perspective? First, I'd say there was a risk of this pandemic really turning into some kind of sort of fuel to the fire for populists, right? That, that populists could really exploit the pandemic because early on in the first few months, there were many people that I'd sort of broadly describe as populists that are sort of saying, look, you know, you see what globalization brings you, what global cooperation brings you, you get viruses that cross borders. They argued that it meant that if you were protectionist, that you could become more resilient and so forth. I think these are all the wrong arguments, the wrong conclusions to draw. You know, we live in a global world and the more we trade with each other on fair terms, the more prosperity there will be globally, right? And so these were the wrong arguments, but there was a risk it was going to be sort of uh, used by these populists. But I think two things have happened since the pandemic that have given certainly me comfort that this isn't going to be the case. And one of those, actually, I would pick is Brexit. Right? Look, Brexit was going to happen. That was long decided before the pandemic. But the type of Brexit that has happened is this sort of global outward looking the UK that is fully engaged with the world's challenges and the agenda the UK is setting for the G7 this year, the COP26 talks, the announcements and more broadly on combating climate change, declining biodiversity, global security. This is a UK that's going to be engaged, is open to talent. The decisions the UK has made around the Hong Kong visas and things like that just shows you it's a country that's going to remain open to people of all backgrounds because we've benefited from that for centuries and that's not going to change. But the other thing that's happened, Biden, the biggest elected populist in the world was Donald Trump. And he's been replaced by a multilateralist that wants to sit around the table. And that's clearly got to be a good thing too. I think that's an excellent way to end us. I think we have covered as much as we can about this topic today. Vittorio, Sajid, thank you so much for joining me. It's been terrific to have you on the show and hearing your perspectives on a post-Brexit world. And thank you for covering not just Europe and the UK, but also the impact that Brexit will have globally. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, you. Thank you, Sajita. Great being here with you. And to our listeners, please stay tuned for some more episodes of What's the Deal, where I'll be joined by other global business and industry leaders to talk about timely topics that are transforming the future of deal-making. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.